Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. This is our News Roundup episode for the week. We did a Question of the Week episode earlier in the week about the Apple event. And so we'll mostly focus on other news this week, although, frankly, Apple did rather dominate the news. And so we will still have some Apple stories in here. Uh, The first thing we're going to talk about is a story that started out being about Facebook, but it sort of expanded to include Google and Twitter as well and relates to ad targeting and the fact that each of these companies offers advertisers the opportunity to target people by some pretty unpleasant keywords and interest groups. Uh, Secondly, we'll talk about a fairly late-breaking bit of news from Amazon, uh, sorry, not from Amazon, but about Amazon from NBC News, which is about Amazon potentially buying up some of the less-watched cable channels from some of the big TV companies. And then thirdly, we will do a roundup of other Apple news, some stuff that sort of dribbled out Uh, from Apple itself in terms of additional detail beyond what was actually announced on stage on Tuesday, but also a couple of other pieces that relate to Apple that were not actually connected to this week's announcement. So that'll be the agenda for today's episode. We'll start out with this ad targeting story. And if you haven't followed this, it started out with reporting by ProPublica, who received a tip that it was possible to go onto Facebook's ad targeting tool and basically search for interest groups like Jew haters and things like that, really unpleasant anti-Semitic stuff, among other things. And essentially, this is based on self-reported interests that users can enter into a sort of open-ended field. So you can have, say, a field of study. If you were in college or whatever, there's a box where you would normally put physics or social sciences or whatever else it might be, but you can put in whatever you want to. And enough people have put in these Uh, really nasty uh, interests into those fields that they will now show up in Facebook's ad targeting tool. There aren't enough people there to actually uh, target an ad at that group. There's sort of 2,000 people or something in most of these groups. And so you need to find and cluster together several different groups to actually build an audience big enough to to target an ad. Um, But at any rate, it feels very unpleasant that you should be able to go on Facebook and target an ad on this basis. And so Facebook got kind of hammered by ProPublica over this and uh, they've subsequently said, Facebook subsequently said they will disable this tool that uses user-generated um, uh, answers to these fields until they can figure out how to manage it better. Um, but over the last day or so, various reporters have also dug into how this works at Google and how it works at Twitter, and in some cases actually substantially worse. At Google, you look for some of these nasty terms, and it auto-suggests additional really nasty terms that you might want to target by. Twitter has similar problems as well. So uh, it's clearly not a problem that only affects Facebook. Facebook's the only one I think that's officially sort of uh, changed its tool. Google has talked about it, but I'm not sure they've actually done anything to change the way that works for now. Importantly, all this stuff is generated by algorithms. It's not human beings going in and saying, oh, wouldn't it be nice if our advertisers could target advertising to these groups of anti-Semites, for example, um, it's all algorithmic generated from stuff that users have entered and that, as I say, in some cases is just big enough to register on that uh, on that tool. But it's still a, a bad look, as they say. It really doesn't look good for these companies that you can target advertising in this way and presumably somebody could actually try to uh, serve up ads to those groups yeah, if they wanted to do that. But Aaron, what was your take on this? Well, I think this is a really interesting news item when you combine it with the revelation from earlier that Facebook sold $100,000 in advertising to essentially fake news from Russian outlets. Um, Because that would be one of the primary reasons you would target hate groups, right, is to, to, to essentially reach out and have political influence with a highly motivated group of people of a particular political persuasion. Because I don't know how much money you make off of off of you know advertising to anti semites, but 
but uh, you might be able to leverage a voting pattern, for example, in a particular community by pushing fake news about a about a candidate, um, and uh, <clears throat> and so you know any sort of conspiratorial kind of um, media push that I guess technically qualifies as advertising, even if it's not selling a particular product or service, is I think where the much bigger danger lies. I mean. I think it's terrible that people have these have these uh, th- these racist and anti and anti-Semitic perspectives. If somebody wanted to advertise to them, that to me seems less important than the idea that that those groups through Facebook can be leveraged, right, in a particular and especially powerful way. I don't think Facebook has any. Not only do they not have an obligation, but they ought not be participating in these groups being cohesive in these groups, you know, having a, a bigger voice on the internet than they might be able to muster up on their own. And that's where, that's where this is all, I don't know, I think, I, I think why it's so important. And it's an interesting problem because free speech in the past has always sort of been about, well, you know, you can, um, you can talk to your neighbors and say whatever you want. You can go on the news and say whatever you want. If you want to start up your own little publication, you can do that too. And the internet has been a continuation of that sort of general free spirit. But now that a lot of communication is actually getting much more localized into platforms like Facebook, or we can just say, I guess, Twitter too, but mostly Facebook, now you have the interesting additional problem of, okay, we have a private company owned by private individuals you know, w- w- that uh, are entirely and legally fully allowed to limit speech however they want to. Uh, and the question is, how far should that reach? Um, I don't know. I'm kind of the opinion that, that uh, you know, they're not government, and people are entitled to choose other platforms too. That this Facebook's not a public utility, right? And so, um, so I... I I, and I'm normally a strong constitutionalist, like I'm a big fan of the Bill of Rights, um, uh, but I, I don't think private companies have any obligation to protect speech, and so I'm, I'm going way off here now, I'm realizing. But the point is, <laughs> I think Facebook should be going after this stuff and not making it part of their platform, um, you know, and and yeah. uh, shutting the tool down was, was a good move today. Um, but... Uh, I'll be interested to see where that you know what happens next, because the, yeah. Facebook has a tendency to 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 not be proactive about this stuff. They tend to just kind of say, I, I mean, the, the reality is most of the time they're looking about squeezing out ad dollars, mm-hmm. and then it's when they get caught that uh, that they go, oh shoot, we got to fix that. Yeah, and I guess I, I have a somewhat different take on this, and I. I think ultimately this grows out of Facebook's scale, right? That, that's the fundamental issue here is that Facebook's operating at 2 billion plus monthly active user scale. You know, goodness knows how many registered users they have. And when you operate at that scale, you're going to have groups that grow to a size where they show up on these tools. But I think, I think about 2,000 users, which is the kind of numbers that we're talking about here, out of 2 billion. You know, so it's literally 1 in 1 million users that would be a member of one of these groups, for example. And... Is that really an issue? Is you know, yes, in theory, an advertiser could target advertising to these groups, but unless you actively go looking for it, it's not like Facebook is proactively serving this stuff up to people and saying, "Hey, wouldn't you like to reach these anti-Semites on our platform?" You know, 
And, uh, and so I think that's the key thing here is it, Facebook isn't surfacing this. It isn't deliberately trying to sell this stuff. It's just an outgrowth of the fact that at its scale, there's no way this stuff can be human curated. It has to be algorithmically generated. And yes, they've shut it down, and so for now the problem's dealt with. But you've also in the process shut down every other user-generated interest field, whether that's people whose children suffer from some rare genetic disease, whether it's people who are interested in collecting some sort of obscure collectibles or something like that, um, you know, people who are interested in 7th century Armenian literature, you know, no matter what it might be, you know, there are perfectly legitimate groups that you might want to target in this way where Facebook's never going to create a curated topic around that and it's going to have to be user generated and advertisers might conceivably want to reach those groups and it basically means that one of the big appeals of Facebook which is that you can reach so many different people suddenly goes away from an advertiser perspective at least and which is why I think frankly this won't last very long I think Facebook will find some sort of band-aid fix for it and then light the tool right back up again because it's a really important tool for them to be able to offer to advertisers um, but I, I, I do worry sometimes that the sort of outrage machine with these things is so easily spurred into action and, and gather steam so quickly. And yet nobody's actually been harmed by any of this stuff as far as we know. And it just it, it does feel as though this is very unpleasant. It looks awful, but I'm not sure it's actually doing anybody any harm right now. And it's indicative of the fact that these are open platforms that users engage with how they want to. And the only way to really police this is to kind of create further algorithms, because you can't do this on human scale, uh, create, create further algorithms that will have a lot of both false positives and false negatives, will shut down a lot of perfectly legitimate stuff, uh, and probably not catch all the bad stuff. And so the question is just kind of how far do we want those algorithms to go? You know, if we don't trust the algorithms we have, why do we think new algorithms are going to solve the problem ultimately? And that's really the only way you can solve problems like this. And so. I don't know. My, my main response to this whole thing is that how awful, but it hasn't actually done anybody any harm, and I don't think there's a solution to it. I think this is just a fact of life when we're off operating at sort of billion, two billion user scale. I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I don't think we know yet, though, what harm it might have done. Like, we don't know yet how people have been using um, this particular, like, interest, you know, personal interest tool to target their advertising. Facebook isn't going to be forthcoming about how many of those ads it sold. Like, they're not going to say, like, well, actually, you know, Daily Stormer paid for, you know, $75,000 of advertising targeting, you know, this group of 150,000 uh, Facebook users. I mean, that that's a that's that's not that unlikely of a scenario in my mind. And, uh, and but Facebook's not talking about it. Facebook's not being public about it. Um, you know, they're they're going to they there's an article on talking points memo that sort of went after google and the way that they use and this is mostly related to the <clears throat> facebook's involvement in the russia propaganda of the election last year um but you know facebook falls back on this internal policies thing all the time and i thought the article made a really good point that that there's a lot of arbitrariness there and also sometimes an appearance of civic responsibility when in reality Facebook, you know, in the majority of cases is just trying to make money. Um, it, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing that ProPublica is now putting pressure on Facebook to sort this out and behave in a responsible way because up until now they've had no incentive to. I mean, they, they, their financial incentive was to keep this wide open. And let Daily Stormer, you know, advertise or whoever else advertise to hate groups if they want to, um, yeah. which just sort In of fairness. propagates it and fuels it, right? Rather than um, 
sort of like starving it of oxygen, which is a good thing in many ways. Yeah, I guess in fairness, though, they've recently clamped down on who can buy ads on Facebook. So they're kind of arguably addressing it at the other end, which is where, you know, if a publication's repeatedly cited for fake news, for example, then Facebook yeah. no longer allows that publication to buy ads to promote their news. And it's not quite the same as hate content, although I think the policy applies the same way there. Um, so I think they're kind of solving that problem at the other end, where the ad itself is subject to curation and moderation and so on, you know, even if the interest groups it's trying to be served to is not. Um, yeah. And so, I don't know. As I say, I think, I think ultimately Facebook would have to be a very, very different company uh, in order to deal with all this stuff, and I'm not sure it's worth the cost to them or to everybody else to actually deal with some of this stuff, because I don't really think it's causing a lot of harm or if it is it's very much at the periphery on a very small scale yeah this is the problem of facebook being the internet for a lot of people right mm -hmm. i mean this is what happens when one company is essentially an and a, a a microcosm not just a microcosm of the internet but for some people facebook is the internet i mean they you know they're it might facebook might shuttle them off to other websites because they want to read an article but a lot of people are experiencing a huge chunk of their of the internet every day through the lens or through the um, through the medium of Facebook, which means Facebook is essentially. I mean, it's like harkening back to the days of America Online, you know, in the in the nineties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Facebook is now a, a modern version of that. And this is one of the problems: is if you have two billion users who are experiencing the, and it's not that many in reality, but if you have billions of users experiencing the internet through you. Um, then you're going to have all the same problems that, you know, it's different if if uh, if these hate groups are self-organizing with their own websites on self-hosted servers, buying their own domains. Do you know what I'm saying? That that all feels mm. very different than than Facebook doing it because Facebook is doing this all for a profit. They're doing it to make mm -hmm. money. Right. So. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. I suspect we can carry on for that on that topic for a bit longer. But uh, in the interest yeah. of time, we'll move on to the next topic. Um, so this, if you haven't seen this yet, this is a story that broke on Friday afternoon from NBC News, which doesn't typically break a lot of tech news, but uh, uh, CNBC often does, but NBC News doesn't. Um, this is a story about Amazon potentially buying uh, TV channels from companies that are looking to offload some of their less viewed channels. And the context here is that got cord cutting sort of going uh, bonkers over the last few years, people cutting the cord and therefore uh, distribution for cable networks dropping, but also viewership of traditional linear TV networks dropping significantly over the last few years. And so there are these big TV conglomerates that own very successful cable networks they very much want to continue to invest in, but also owning uh, less watched cable networks that in some cases actually still have massive distribution. Uh, that perhaps aren't quite worth it to them to keep going. And they want to sort of focus their efforts on a few successful channels, potentially shut down or ideally offload by selling some of those less watched channels. And, and the story from NBC News is that Amazon's interested in buying, and I quote, scores of those channels. I'm not convinced there are scores of those channels out there to buy, to be honest, <laughs> but um, at any rate, at least ones they'd want to buy. Uh, but some of the examples cited are uh, VH1 and CMT, so two of the lesser known sort of cousins of the MTV channels and then uh, Adult Swim and Boomerang um, at Turner. And, uh, you know, it's obviously the context on the Amazon side is massive investment in original content around Amazon Prime Video, uh, also the sort of subscription add-ons that you can add to Prime for premium cable networks like HBO and Showtime and Stars and so on, um, and the broader competition with Netflix and Hulu, increasingly Apple and others as well around original content. 
And, uh, and I think also importantly, additional context is Amazon's investment in advertising, which has been quiet, but growing very rapidly. Uh, and they've become one of the big players in online advertising in the US without a lot of people really kind of noticing. Uh, if you follow Amazon closely, you're probably aware of that, but it's all online advertising. They've dabbled with doing some pre-roll stuff for some free video on their site, uh, but the vast majority of the advertising is just online banner type advertising, sponsored placement and that kind of thing. Uh, this obviously would open up new opportunities if they were to continue to run them as linear channels, whether through traditional pay TV distribution or as sort of part of Prime or as add-ons to Prime, would open up a whole new opportunity for advertising. But Aaron, kind of what's your response to all of that? Well, it's a fascinating prospect. I mean, this is the next level up in original content is <laughs> actually owning an entire network, um, one that's broadcast over cable and has to be pumping out, you know, material 24 hours a day. And obviously it's lots of reruns and, and lots of advertising. Um, it, it's It also feels a little weird to me because Amazon... Um, uh, Netflix, uh, Hulu, and others have been breaking new ground with how people are are, are finding and, and consuming video content. And this feels like a backward step. Uh, um, but I assume it's because, like you said, there are, some, there are potentially some advertising innovations there. Um, you know, some of these are notable channels because of their original content. I mean, Adult Swim, for example, has 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 a pretty outsized um, cultural influence relative to the size of the channel itself and and you know they've had a couple of shows that are uh, that are you know th that uh, have lots of YouTube clips for example that get shared all around and Rick and Morty is a one of their more recent shows well it's it's, it's had a lot of success recently and gotten a lot of notoriety lately and and uh, and so I wonder how much of this is like an original con, like they're essentially doing some original content buys. You're not going to be able to buy these shows away from these channels. You can't buy VH1's original content away from it because there's not much that's left afterwards that would that somebody would want to maintain and run. And so I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what they do. It's I think what's most interesting about this is that there are so many potential plays with this kind of a purchase. If you buy up a bunch of these. A, a bunch of these channels, what do you do next? And it's interesting to think in the hands of Amazon in particular, because they seem to be willing to try a lot of different stuff. It's just so, it's fun to think about like, wow, you could try this and this and this, and it's going to be fun to see what they do. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, the numbers are always bouncing around out there. Hulu is reported this week to be spending two and a half billion dollars this year on original content. Netflix is spending somewhere between six and seven billion this year on original content. Apple reported to be spending a billion dollars. Facebook too, although in a rather different way. Um, Amazon reported to be around four and a half billion this year, so quite a bit less than Netflix, but certainly bigger than the other online type services. Um, you know somewhere on par with some of the big existing TV companies. But, you know, if you're in this market, if you're competing with Netflix, you've kind of got two options. You either basically go the whole hog and try to spend as much as Netflix and compete on a level playing field, or you try a different approach. And I think what we've already seen from Amazon over the last couple of years is this emphasis on selling add-ons to premium cable networks, for example, to the Prime service, so that it's not recreating the cable package as a whole, and it's also not just going down the original content route and trying to acquire and commission everything itself. It's sort of this mix of stuff where you own some and then you bundle some. And you know, this idea of buying these TV networks is 
very much in keeping with the sort of bundle sum approach where you kind right. of say, we don't need to commission and buy everything ourselves. We can just take stuff that's already out there. Somebody's already created all this value. They've created the brand. This stuff exists. There's interest in it. And we can either offer that as an add-on. We can offer that as value add to our existing Prime subscription. Or, frankly, we can just keep running these channels, but now they're owned by Amazon. And we make the money from those channels and we get to do clever cross-platform targeting across online and video advertising to you know, prime subscribers, people who shop on Amazon and so on such that we can do really clever targeted advertising, especially on digital platforms uh, for some of that stuff. And so it's a really interesting opportunity to kind of say, hey, we don't have to own all the individual shows. We just own the platform through which they run. To the user, it's basically indistinguishable. Um, and you know they could then parcel up the individual shows as well and make those available on demand through Amazon Prime Video too. But there's an interesting sort of opportunity there that's different and distinct from what other players are doing. And I think that sort of demonstrates Amazon's smarts in this space, where they're not just trying to do exactly the same as everybody else. They do have their own uh, ways of doing things. And in some cases, those have actually worked out really well. The um, the, the TV subscription stuff has been very successful for them. I mean, HBO stars in particular, most of their subscriptions for their online streaming service come through Amazon, not through you know people downloading the app and signing up within the app. So it's become a major distribution point for a lot of this stuff already. It really is pointing to the future of these streaming companies essentially becoming the next cable companies. And obviously there will be important details that are different, like being able to stream on demand and those th- sorts of changes, but it's pointing to uh, Comcast and and others essentially becoming data connections for people. I don't know. I mean, long term, when is this kind of stuff happens, um, it, you know, and the, and the trend that's been going on with cable with cord cutters for for, I don't know, five years now, at least, it just really feels like and and wireless data becoming more and more popular and the big carriers pushing out unlimited data plans. Uh, you know, it just seems harder and harder to see how Comcast and and even the satellite providers, the TV providers, can uh, they can't keep doing what they're doing because things are just changing and it's all data now and and uh, um, it's 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 a tricky world to be playing in if you're an old guard company like Comcast. Yeah, although I'd argue Comcast one of the more sort of forward-looking ones in terms of testing uh, streaming versions of their pay TV platform and their actual you know cable set-top box platform is pretty advanced compared to most of the others. So they are at least thinking about some of this stuff. They've yeah. got Netflix and YouTube on the box now as well and that kind of thing. They are, but if Amazon is offering all those same channels plus a bunch of exclusive original content, um, you know, that's where it gets harder. So... Mm. Anyway, yeah, no, it's definitely going to be interesting. I mean, I agree with you in, in general. I just uh, I think Comcast is one of the better positioned ones, but certainly there's some of the other cable and, and satellite companies out there that are going to be really stuck over the next few yeah. years. Yeah. All right, well, let's push on to our Apple roundup here at the end. We've got a bunch of stuff that either came out in terms of details that wasn't mentioned on stage or other things that have sort of happened subsequently. Uh, Face ID, the sort of new face unlocking feature on the iPhone 10, seems to have been a big focus, a number of different news items and things coming out around that. Um, Specifically, there was a small sort of glitch on stage with uh, Face ID when Craig Federighi was doing a demo, which has got disproportionate amounts of attention, which we'll talk about briefly. Uh, Senator Al Franken sent a list of questions to Apple about the Face ID feature and how it was going to work, which basically ignored the long history of Touch ID, which he previously investigated. Um, There was a separate story about 
um, Apple's changes to Safari with regard to third-party cookies that are coming uh, with new versions of Mac OS and so on in the next few weeks, um, which the ad industry basically has pushed back pretty hard against this week. Um, and then if we get time, we might talk about this other one, Bloomberg reporting that Apple's uh, potentially participating to the tune of $3 billion in a joint bid with Bain and Company and other investors in uh, Toshiba's memory business, which they're trying to offload and, and which, of course, Apple uses extensively in its iPhones. So a whole range of Apple stuff. But let's start with the Face ID stuff. Uh, and Aaron, let's start with you on that. Yeah, I, the coverage has been really annoying this week because it's like everybody forgot how Touch ID works. This is actually kind of an indictment for a lot of the tech press is because the freak out over what happened on stage assumed that 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 uh, face ID wasn't recognizing Federighi. David Pogue did, you know, dug into that more and got in touch with Apple. And and then Apple reached out to some other outlets, too. And, and, and the answer was you no. Know, some handlers on stage that were getting the demo units ready had their face scanned too many times inadvertently, which led to it getting locked out, just like if somebody tries to use Touch ID too many times when they don't have the right fingerprint. I mean, that's, you know, we were talking about this beforehand, and you said that that seemed like the obvious explanation of what happened. And, um, you know, there are two problems here. One is that some people in the tech press just aren't tech savvy enough, as they, as they should be. Um, and then the other is that you know, any sort of scandal you can gin up, especially about a big company like Apple, um, is 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 worth being out there fast with a clickbaity headline. And uh, it was just really silly, like the overreaction to it. And the truth of it is, which is really cool, is that Face ID performed exactly as it was supposed to. <laughs> In fact, right. it, when, he, when he moved to the other unit, um, which he did pretty quickly, when he moved to the other unit, it was... Uh, um, you know, it worked right away and seamlessly multiple times in a row. It's funny. I actually think part of this <clears throat> is the part of this is I, the, part of this uh, brouhaha about this is is lays at Craig Federighi's feet. But I'm expecting a lot in a high pressure moment. But what would have been the best is if he had said, "I bet somebody else, I bet somebody else's face setting these up looked at it too many times. Let me try this other unit." He could have like showed how this actually works, right? This is awesome. This worked mm -hmm. the way it was supposed to. Um, and then the other complaints, like Senator Franken requesting, like you know, is Face ID going to be hackable or available to third parties? It's like everybody forgot how Touch ID works, which is, which is that you know, the, this data is stored on the device, totally inaccessible by anything else, by apps or anything else. In a secure enclave, a technology that now that Touch ID has been out for years has still not really been hacked, at least not the enclave part. Um, and so, uh, I, I mean, it, it's going to it's going to be really impressive. Gruber wrote an article today on Daring Fireball and said that Apple's been committed to this for a year simply because it works better and is seamless. And he apparently talked with engineers that have been using it as their prime using a, a, an iPhone 10 as their primary device um, for a while now and and they say that going back to touch ID almost feels um, like the phone's not working right because how come it's not unlocking by me looking at it right yeah yeah no I think I think face ID and we talked about it briefly in the in the question of the week episode earlier in the week but you know on its face no pun intended it's uh, you know it is better because it doesn't even require any sort of touch at all on the device you just kind of hold it up and it unlocks by itself so quickly that when you go to 
open up the device, it just works, uh, having already recognized and scanned your face. But I think the bit, if there is a downside, it's the fact that unlike uh, Touch ID, you can't train it on multiple people or multiple right. fingers or thumbs anyway. So, you know, I have, uh, I think I have my wife and at least one of my kids have thumbs or fingers trained on my phone so that they can easily unlock it. So if I'm driving or whatever, my wife doesn't have to ask me what my passcode is and all the rest of it. You know, there's definitely circumstances where that's helpful. You can't do that with Face ID. It's a single face thing, which is why it caused this glitch on stage where presumably people kind of cleaning the phones before uh, they went on stage, you know, held them up and therefore woke them and then looked at them and the phone failed to recognize them and therefore eventually kind of locked up the device, which if anybody's ever handed a locked iPhone to a toddler for a few minutes, you'll know that's what happens with Touch ID <laughs> too, where, you know, they press a bunch of buttons and after a few seconds it says, okay, this person clearly doesn't know the passcode and doesn't have a thumb that's registered. I'm going to lock up until somebody puts in the passcode. So, you know, that's totally familiar, which is why I was like, that's obviously what happened here as well when it happened on stage. But as you say, amazing how this stuff can get blown out of proportion. Um, the Al Franken stuff just seems silly. I mean, you know, it's, he, he has a reputation for being very interested in technology and especially invasive technology, but that's yeah. the last thing that these Apple technologies are. They're the opposite of that. They're intended to be very sort of uh, privacy and security sensitive technologies. They've got a long track record at this point. And, um, you know, the whole point of them is they store everything locally on the device. Nothing goes back to the cloud. It's not accessible by anybody, uh, you know, in a raw form at all. Um, and they've got a long history of that. And yet, you know, have these bizarre questions about law enforcement and selling data to advertisers and things like that, as if nobody knows who Apple is to begin with. It's really odd. Yeah, I think um, what... Speaking of that, yeah. I was just going to say, I think what's so silly about all this Face ID stuff is how everybody is imagining up all these ridiculous scenarios that some nefarious person is going to try to hack into your phone using your face. Like, mm -hmm. if I get mugged, can the mugger hold it up to my face? Right. There was all this about Touch ID when it came out, and there was even one question as to whether or not a severed finger could get somebody right. access to a phone. And it was silly that Apple even had to answer that question. Um, mm. I think right now, because nobody's experienced it or gotten used to it, everybody's thinking of like these crazy outlier situations. And and the reality is, we all just ought to settle down a bit. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I agree. Um, speaking of advertisers, which we were talking about just now, um, there was a group of uh, sort of trade groups representing advertisers uh, that wrote an open letter to Apple this week about the changes in Safari, which frankly were announced back in June. So this seems like odd timing to raise this now all of a sudden when uh, the new versions of Mac OS and so on are just about to roll out to users in the next few weeks. But essentially, the big change in the way cookies are dealt with in Safari now is that um, there are first-party cookies and third-party cookies. So there are cookies that relate to the site you're currently visiting, and then there are cookies that relate to other entities that also drop cookies from that site. And so um, there's now limitations where third-party cookies only get retained for 24 hours and then get dropped. And what that means is that advertisers can't continue to track your behavior across other sites uh, after the first 24 hours. So say Amazon drops a cookie on your computer when you're browsing for items on Amazon's site, they can't now, three days later, pop up an ad on a separate site for something on Amazon that you browsed for. Um, and, you know, Apple made that change to preserve user privacy, again, in keeping with their sort of broad and pretty strong privacy stance. Um, but these advertisers are saying, hey, this feels arbitrary and it's going to hurt our business to serve up our retargeting campaigns, which I presume Apple, Apple hasn't formally responded as far as I've seen, but I'm sure their response is, yep. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of the point. Um, you know, there's, there's absolutely no danger to Apple here whatsoever. It's advertising. The advertisers that want to advertise to Safari users are clearly not a core constituency for Apple, not a constituency it, it really cares to serve at all, whereas its users are, and it's very much siding with users here. There's no real user benefit to persistent third-party cookie tracking or anything relating to that. So it just it seemed like a funny thing for the, A, for these companies to do this so late in the day, B, to ex- for them to expect really anything back from Apple at all. It just felt like sort of a positioning statement that's not really likely to do any good. Well, and I mean, I have no idea what sympathy they thought they were going to engender. Um, but right. yeah, I don't know. It, yeah, I, I highly recommend an article by Ben Lovejoy in 9to5Mac that was just published uh, earlier this morning. Um, and it's it's the reason I recommend it is not because I agree with his conclusion, but because a it's a great explainer of the technical details, so you can understand exactly how this cookie policy works now in Safari. But b he actually Ben Lovejoy actually comes out to say that he doesn't like the change. It, he thinks it's a unnecessarily unnecessary limitation. Um, I don't agree with his his conclusions. I mean, you could argue that he's biased because he runs nine to five Mac, which relies on ad revenue to sustain itself. Mm. Um, but that said, it's 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 reasonably even handed and it's and it's thorough. And so I definitely recommend reading it. Um, but I echo everything mm. you said. I just think this is an improvement for user experience. I think when I've searched for and bought something on Amazon, the fact that it still shows up in banner ads for me up to 30 days later, especially after mm. I bought it, which is what's really stupid about this. <laughs> yes. I mean, how I have no idea how advertisers can think this is money well spent. I'm not going to go buy a second mm. thing. I'm not going to rebuy the thing. Um, right. And so I really don't get it. It just feels really sloppy. The truth is, I think the the firms that are paying the advertisers might end up saving money on this because I wonder how much money mm-hmm. is wasted on this. On this, yeah. you know, five days later, you were looking at, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a stand mixer, right? You're looking up for, you're looking at KitchenAid right. stand mixers, and you're still seeing ads for them five yeah. days after you've actually paid yeah. for the thing. It's it's kind of ridiculous, mm-hmm. and so yeah. there will be a loss of revenue, but not for the people I'm most sympathetic to. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, well, I think given uh, how long we've gone for, I think we'll probably round things up there. There's other Apple stuff we could talk about, but we'll, we'll hold it for a later time if it's still worth talking about next week. But uh, thanks very much, everybody, for listening. As usual, we'll have some links in the show notes to stuff that we've talked about. Um, Aaron mentioned a Talking Points media, uh, sorry, Talking Points memo story um, earlier in the context of the Facebook, Google, and Twitter ad targeting stuff we talked about, so we'll link to that. He just mentioned a 9to5Mac piece as well, so we'll also link to that in the show notes as well as some other stuff in relation to what we've talked about. So you can find the additional details there and link to those stories. Um, Thanks very much again for listening. Uh, That wraps up the podcast for the week, and we should be back next week, certainly with a news roundup episode. Not sure if we'll have a question of the week episode next week, Um, but certainly look for the regular news roundup episode towards the end of next week again. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.